This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is a Monday morning, the 14th of November, and a very special edition of the Business Breakfast because we have taken this show on the road to the nation's capital for the first time. And we're loving it down at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. So what have we got for you today on the Bite Size Business Breakfast? Well, we're going to kick up with our overview of Abu Dhabi Finance Week uh, down here at ADGM. Then we're going to hear from one of the key people here, Mohammed Ali Yassin, veteran investor, talking about reminiscing about setting up a stock brokerage firm in 1984 and what that means for the crypto markets. Then we're going to hear from Henzi Healy. She's a lawyer. Again, more on the crypto crash and the collapse of FTX. And finally, more on COP, COP27. Brandy's back. It still continues, though. Going to hear from the guys at Etihad Airways about what they're doing to try and be a net zero company. All that to come. But first up, we are in the nation's capital, Abu Dhabi. And this is why we're here. We're delighted to be down here at Abu Dhabi Global Market. It is a beautiful morning. A lot of it is happening outdoors at the moment. They've got pop-up restaurants. They've got burger stands. They've got pizza trucks. It's all kicking off down here. So get yourself down if you can. Tom, you're speaking to one of the guys behind this event. Who have you got? Yes, we will be very shortly speaking to Emmanuel Givinakis, the CEO of ADGM's Financial Services Regulatory Authority. Emmanuel uh, has been involved uh, with the ADGM uh, since, th- what, 2014, I think, is part of the legal team, has obviously taken on his current role uh, as part of the regulatory authority in 2021, when his predecessor stepped down. So he's got a great overview of the growth of ADGM, uh, the services they offer, uh, but also this event. I mean, lest we forget, this is the inaugural Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Yet we've had precursors. FinTech Abu Dhabi Festival was well received and well attended in years gone by. But interested to know why the growth, why the why the step up, why the pop up um, uh, uh, food trucks, as you mentioned there. Why the massive names flying in for this one? In fact, I am um, <laughs> I. I, I since drove down from uh, Dubai this morning to Abu Dhabi so very early uh, alarm call for me but I was struck by the number of how do we put this uh, blacked out SUVs traveling in transformation together heading down towards Abu Dhabi okay uh, and I'm just wondering whether that was to do with certain uh, drop-off slots but again you know we point a point our direction towards Abu Dhabi Finance Week and the high delegation of guests they've got here lest we forget you know you've got the Abu Dhabi road show the um, Formula One road show yeah. coming to town as well for this weekend so the Milken Institute are in town as well this week golf's coming up Golf's coming up as well, so no shortage of big names. But yeah, I did think, uh, wow, there's only so many sort of landing slots you can get, <laughs> isn't there, uh, at Abu Dhabi International. Maybe a few have landed their jets or others uh, at uh, Dubai Airport as well. But yeah, very high standard of guests down here and looking forward to the week as a whole. And of course, what, one of the issues that you can't escape talking about regulation in Abu Dhabi global market is regulation of cryptos. We were just talking to Mohammed Ali Yassin about that. And he was talking about, you know, the, relating the story of, you know, back in the early 80s and his dad setting up one of the first stockbrokers in the UAE when it wasn't particularly regulated to crypto exchanges. And he says there are similarities between them. We know that Abu Dhabi global market has been very proactive in terms of crypto. So it'll be interesting to find out exactly. the regulators take on that. Yeah, I want to get, well, A, that, the crypto uh, challenges at the moment. Um, 
they dealt with the digital bank revolution very well and were one of the first to sort of offer licenses and regulations for digital banks to come in and set up um, here in the region. Um, are they doing the same now with crypto and blockchain uh, technology as a whole? Again, a question we will put to Emmanuel in just a little while. Because you're right, we have made no light and uh, the region's made no light this, uh, of the, the fact that things are very busy here at the moment. How often do we sit in the studio up in Dubai and talk about uh, new acquisitions, new JVs, new investments in and out of Abu Dhabi? So obviously Emmanuel and the rest of his team have their work cut out at the moment. But with that and with the crypto challenges, as we're reporting this morning, come their own challenges, especially for regulation. All good and well, you know, setting out to be a hub for crypto exchanges and platforms. But in light of some of the issues that will be discussed here this week, just how difficult is that? What's the big story for you here, Brandy? Uh, other than the food trucks. Well, well, the food trucks clearly front and centre. Have you got your almond milk yet, by the way? I'm waiting. Okay, fine. That uh, will come. Do you know what? It's nice to be outside. It's nice to have actual weather to see the sunrise and the rest of it. Bit of a novelty for us. We get out and about, but it's not often we're actually out, out and about, is it? Um, I think it's the nuts and bolts in finance. A lot of the discussions um, will be a little bit less glamorous, shall we say? than the crypto discussions, but no less important. All that is coming up. And we've got some sports stars as well, Tom, haven't we? We talked about Patrice Evra earlier on. He is a former France and Manchester United player of some repute. World Cup winner, I think, perhaps? Maybe not. I could be wrong on that. But yeah, if, I think you're right, actually. Very yeah. accomplished footballer. He's going to be speaking about his business career. But uh, Shikha Dawan, the Indian cricketer, and he's not a retired cricketer. He is still a cricketer. Yep. A international cricketer, franchise cricketer talking about investments and setting up something here in Abu Dhabi. Exactly, yeah. Uh, that sort of speaks of the scope of speakers, delegates, guests coming over Finance Week here. Yes, we've got the traditional uh, Brooks Brothers team turning up from the United States, uh, uh, but also you've got a lot of startups, a lot of tech, a lot of uh, investors coming to Finance Week and in a, from a, different, a number of different backgrounds, you know, be you... Um, one of the most recognised uh, Indian cricketers of the modern era and as you say somebody who's still got a very huge footprint in the game uh, with a number of followers etc. Uh, looking for life outside of cricket obviously planning forward uh, and for the future uh, so it'll be interesting to see Shikhar here speaking on day one I think speaking today. He is indeed yeah looking forward to that one. Uh, what else have we got other stories happening in the world it is a Monday morning markets are up and running we've been speaking to the chief economist at Emirates MBD Katija Hack. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange is up this morning on news that China will ease some COVID restrictions and has also announced a series of measures to support the property sector. The other big event today, of course, is the G20 summit in Indonesia, and the focus there will be on the meeting between President Xi and President Biden. Um, that would be the first time they've met since President Biden was elected. And that is a biggie. President Biden and Xi Jinping meeting. So we'll have more on that throughout the week. The other one that Katija and the team are focusing on, they say there's a lot going on in the UK. 
The main event this week will likely be the release of the UK's new fiscal plans on Thursday, which according to the Chancellor's recent comments will involve both tax increases and spending cuts in order to plug an estimated £50 billion budget shortfall over the next few years. We have to wait to see whether the details of the uh, plans are enough to assuage the market fears about the UK's debt sustainability over the medium term. The voice of Katija Hack. She is the chief economist of Emirates MBD. Tell you one story, Brandy. I, I, I saw this and thought of you over the weekend. Was Diwa? You're a shareholder in Diwa, aren't oh. you? You bought into the IPO. Really good set of numbers from Diwa. Profit for nine months rising 21% to six and a half billion dirhams. You own Diwa. Do you know? Um, I own Diwa and I pay Diwa. Um, <laughs> I did laugh at that particular announcement because where it came in on my emails and I was travelling. Um, at the time, I think I was in Cairo Airport. Um, I got my bill, so it said you owe Dewa 600 and whatever dirhams, and then underneath it said Dewa has record results. <laughs> I thought, I feel I'm a part of this. Exactly, on both sides of the coin. But uh, you, So there are two reasons I thought of you on this. Part, because I know you're a shareholder. Great. Well, you're a customer as well, aren't we Literally all? a shareholder. <laughs> oh, really? It's, yeah, it's not a big... Yeah, no one's asking my opinion on any sort of managerial matters. Let's just put it that way. You're not an activist who's no. going in saying, "Oh, to the board of directors, I'm not sure the strategy's right. We need to think no. about this." But the, the one thing I thought, the other thing I thought about was the fact that revenue is up by uh, for the nine months. I think it's about fifteen percent. D was nine month revenue increase of fifteen percent, one five to twenty one billion dirhams. That, to me, sounds like a bit of proxy data for what's happening in the Dubai economy. Do you know, and it dovetails beautifully with the do numbers, where mobile subscriptions are up 14.7%. So do we think that the population and business activity, Tom, is up 15%? If DWA revenue is up 15%, and if do subscribers are up 14%, can oh. we, how much can we, No, you're not having it. That's just a bit risky. The only reason I'd say that is just look at people's back pockets. And I don't mean by that bulging because of money clips, if they still exist or not. But mobile phones, everyone's got a tendency to carry about 17 mobile phones okay, with them here, haven't they? Yeah. Um, but you don't do have like 5D with connections. That's not living large with, you know, <laughs> a separate Dewa bill for the uh, gazebo. Well, you might have, you, you, you might have um, upgraded and, and decided that times are that good. So uh, I've got tenants in or, I mean, that would suggest, even if it is... Oh, I've got seven mobile connections because I'm having it large and I'm making loads of money. That tells us something about the economy. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely population growth. Is it, if it's yeah. up to 15%, I don't know. but um, that, that, would, that would be extreme, wouldn't it? This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Well, we couldn't come to Abu Dhabi Finance Week without talking to one of our favourite finance experts on the Business Breakfast over our near 20-year history. He is the veteran investor, Mohammed Ali Yassin, and he's live with us in Abu Dhabi Global Market in our pop-up studio. Mohammed, ahlan wa sahlan. Thank you, and welcome to Abu Dhabi. It's good to see you. It really makes adds add a little bit more flavour to this week with having you here. <laughs> We're delighted to be here. Thank I'm you. going to start, and I don't normally do this, but I'm going to start with a bit of history, because people have heard your voice on this show many times, offering expertise on IPOs. But your history, your backstory is fascinating. Your dad set up one of the first stockbrokers in the country. Yes. Back when? 1984 in Abu Dhabi. That was an OTC brokerage before even the markets were even talked about at the time. And there was about probably 20 OTC companies. OTC being over the counter. Over the counter, so it's certificates you had to trade. 
There was no way of recording those trades other than the knowledge of people, just as it used to. And it evolved to what we see today. But literally bits of paper. Of course. And there were, you know, the, tra the trades has to be with people coming with checks. And sometimes you could get some people cancelling the deal before it happens. And you have these commitments. It's amazing. Every bro stock brokerage was an exchange on itself, actually setting its own bid and ask at the time. And there were about maximum four to five in the UAE. We were one of the, we were in Abu Dhabi as an independent and there was MBAD at the time that was the one. And then there was Sharhan, if you remember, in, in Sharjah. And Dubai, was to, I think, was one of the banks, uh, yeah, EBI, Emirates Bank International at the time, before yeah. it was Emirates MBD. Fascinating <laughs> stuff. And you say there are parallels with that market then when the brokerages were basically exchanges Correct. with what's happening with cryptocurrencies at the moment and the explosion of FTX. Explain that link. Well, at the time, honestly, when these, this business was in 1984, even the central bank did not regulate it at the time. It was the only body that could regulate financial um, institutions. It was very lightly um, regulated. Just like what we see today, is, is more of the exchanges today on the Bitcoin, they're regulating themselves. It's, it's the ethics of the owners, it's the reputation that they do, it's the way they run the business. And what you're finding today is that this explosion of many of those exchanges are happening today is because not proper, I think, overseeing of these kind of businesses, making sure that what is promised and what is talked about in terms of where you keep the money, where you do the custody, what you're doing with the money is actually kept clients just go into it looking after the high returns on these kind of products going on to FTX for example um, it's it's company Almeida which is really it's supposedly one of the reasons why it was like siphoning money into it and then take, taking it away went in 2018 to its investor base with a presentation promising asking for money raising capital promising 15% return on their debt how could we see this in a very developed world in, 2020, in 2018 and not suspect that there is some kind of a Ponzi scheme or something irregular? What Too good to be true. At a time where interest rates were zero. Mm. How could you give me 15% and still? But the second worry I have here is when you talk about 50 billion in terms of exposure, in terms of those smaller companies created and in terms of clients' money, this is not the retail investor putting that 50 billion. This is really institutions, hedge funds, uh, big family offices. And those today, they have a lot of, probably if they're used as margin, they, many of them have talked about losing it all. And therefore, if they have a margin call or they need to raise capital now or raise money to pay some of those debt, that they use this as collateral. Today, that could trickle into our regular markets, which I worry. And therefore, I don't think the story is fully, the impact of it is still being seen. So contagion into the more conventional financial sure. markets uh, like bank lending or even the stock market. It could be at the international level, yes, because that's the kind of level we talk about. Uh, and, you know, this really to me is, is, is a worry. And you have to remember that people, when they see this fear, they go to all other exchanges, probably in other, that they have with other exchanges, and they're pulling their money out, which puts pressure on those kind of businesses. So let's wait and see, but I think it's very tough. And that's why I think we have CZ, on, as you talked in the morning and, and, and this week here. He's, he's the, the founder of Binance, Binance who's and, here at Abu Dhabi Finance And I think everybody's going to be sitting there to watch because they... He's, he's number one, he's the number one exchange in the world, and the number two has went bank, uh, you know, bankrupt now, so everybody's going to be jumping on his uh, bandwagon to know if everything is safe. We're, we've only got Coke left, there's no Pepsi, <laughs> so CZ's going to be busy. He's speaking a little bit later on this week. Uh, finally, before we let you go, here in the UAE more recently, we've had some far more plain vanilla financial innovations, the IPO 
bonanza, Amazing, yeah. which we've seen. But it's been very stable companies, companies like Tcom or Salik in Dubai, and Americana, which owns Pizza Hut and KFC in this region, mm. here in Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia. What do you make of those? I think it's amazing that at the time where we see this turmoil in the international markets, that the IPO market did not dry up here. Everybody was worried that some of those impacts of what we saw earlier in the year will impact us. It didn't. The confidence of investors into their local markets, local companies is good. The liquidity is very high at the moment. So why not continue with that drive provided you have a good story? Americana is an interesting one because it really gives us an access to the retail kind of consumer in terms of the food. But it is also a, a story that you need to understand the benefits and the risks because uh, it, it relies on the franchise agreements that is signed with, with Yum, for example, for, for Pizza Hut and uh, KFC. That, that's the parent company of those brands. Yeah, and therefore, therefore this has to be renewed in order for this to, to, to continue. The, the profits for the year it's being talked about, um, you know, in, in the range of 240 expected for this year, million dollars. Uh, the chairman have committed to distribute 75% of that for the first half, which I think is high, but I think it's also to help the valuation, to pop out the valuation of the company. My belief, the valuation of the company, depending on the yield, is he looking based on this, could be anywhere from 12 to 15 billion dirhams, which means a share price between below 1.5 to above 1.5 if that happens. It's a big organization. Mohammed, we're out of time. Last question. Last meal, what are you picking? Pizza Hut or KFC? <laughs> I'm going healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. He's having a salad. Mohamed Ali Yassin, veteran investor here in Abu Dhabi. It's always a pleasure talking pleasure to, to you. Pleasure to have you. Thank Thanks you. very much indeed My for joining pleasure. us. And we'll catch up later. Pleasure. Live from Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk about that crypto story now. Dominating the business headlines over the past, what, 72 hours or so. The collapse of FT. Going to get the perspective of one crypto expert now, a lawyer, Henzi Healy, managing partner, TCS, the Council Services, joins us live on Microsoft Teams. Henzi, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So let's take a step back. For those that haven't been following the story as closely as others, the, the collapse of FTX over the past what, 100 hours or so, just how significant is this in the world of crypto? It's huge. I mean, FTX is one of the biggest crypto exchanges. So for their token to have fallen 80% in less than 24 hours, creating a domino effect for the rest of the crypto market, it has a huge impact on the, on the entire ecosystem in general. How big a deal was FTX? Put it in context. It was described by many media outlets as one of the big two crypto exchanges. Binance, of course, we know. CZ, the founder, is speaking here in Abu Dhabi this week. How big a deal was FTX? FTX was it was huge. I mean, when when CZ uh, announced that he was selling his shares like his FTT holdings, which Binance had originally acquired um, when they had invested in FTX, when he announced that everyone else started selling as well in the market, which then created huge liquidity issues, which obviously ended up with the disclosure that um, that FTX hadn't was using client funds for other reasons. So they didn't actually have all of that on uh, on account. This reminds me, Henzi, and you're a lawyer, so you'll know this obviously far better than me. It sounds like a bank run. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Living in London in 2007 and 2008, when a relatively small bank called Northern Rock 
was in difficulties and you literally had queues of people lining up and I could see them on the streets of London going to work lining up to take their money out and if you have a run on a bank if confidence evaporates then that's going to happen how valid is that parallel it's it's huge. I mean, after uh, you know, after all of the issues that FTX was having, they then got hacked, uh, and then the six hundred million or whatever that was remaining ended up being withdrawn from the account. So even even though they had approached Binance for assistance, after which uh, Binance, after turning them down, then uh, Justin Song from Tron was potentially uh, thinking about you know um, saving FTX in order to safeguard the crypto industry in general. Um, but then after they got hacked and everything was taken, they filed for bankruptcy, which when we're trying to build uh, trust in a in a system like on, online currencies, which we all believe, yes, is, is better than the institutions, something like this and something that's going on with, you know, crypto.com and all of these things, it, it definitely does put a hindrance uh, on people's trust with regards to crypto in general. Well, in terms of crypto in general, to pick up on your point, is this an existential crisis for crypto or is it just a blip and in two or three years we'll have moved on and we'll be happily trading cryptos again with Binance, maybe, or with BitOasis, which is you know, based here in the UAE? Uh, so the, the line's breaking up a little bit, but from what I understood, um, you know, there if, if whatever, if the rumors about crypto.com are true and... The current situation, because I'm, I'm sure that you saw like the, the USDT, which is usually pegged to the US dollar, that de-pegged, luckily it pegged again, but it was down 3%, which means that the, the market cap went from 69 billion to 66 billion, 3 billion being withdrawn from the market. So if the US, if USDT de-pegs from the US dollar, I mean, I think we're in big trouble. But what, if we can get through all of these things like the like you know an economy is usually booms and busts it's the way that it works so once we get through all of this um, i'm sure we'll be back to, to, to trading crypto normally finally henzi just before we let you go how important is the uae at the moment to the the global crypto scene it's huge i mean as you know binance uh, moved its head office here uh, earlier in the year and there's so many crypto licenses that are coming out i mean BitOasis has obviously been around for a very long time, being one of the, the first local exchanges that ever existed here. So I would say that the UAE, especially from what we've seen with our business, um, it's becoming an international hub for crypto around the globe. Henzi, great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Managing partner TCS, the council services, talking about the collapse of FTX and what it means for the crypto market this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk sustainability. Now, COP is still going on. Second week starts today. And a load of delegates for this week are coming via a very special flight. It's an Etihad flight. It's taken off from Washington. And what's particularly notable about it is that it is a zero net emissions flight. I've been speaking to Mariam Al-Kabasi, who's Itahead's Head of Sustainability, um, about this particular plane and who's on it. I spoke to her, obviously, before they took off. Our tech is good, but it's not that good. And I began by asking her who, what, where and why. It's not who is on the flight, really. It's why the flight is being carried out and how it's being carried out, really. Brandy, that is special about, uh, uh, you know, the whole uh, COP27 flight experience. Because it's a zero emissions flight. How does that work? Well, 
theoretically speaking, it's zero emissions. Um, realistically speaking, uh, we don't have the technology yet to operate a fully uh, emission-free flight. Um, and that's why we we are really literally bootstrapping here for reductions. And this is um, a net, uh, sorry, a net zero flight because we actually utilize 100% SAF um, in in a in in when in reality 100% is not allowed in commercial aviation through a book and claim system. So basically, we're we're using technology, we're using available systems to to that have been successful in the power industry, in our industry, uh, in order for us to to reap basically the fruit of using sustainable aviation fuel in ports that we where we don't have sustainable aviation fuel and have a fully sort of SAF uh, fueled flight uh, from Washington all the way to Sharm el-Sheikh. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. SAF, the sustainable aviation fuel, isn't actually going to be in this plane. Talk me through the book and claim system. Sure. So let's Let's first set the stage of what sustainable aviation fuel is. So it's fuel made from renewable material uh, using sustainable, uh, basically, um, uh, procedures or procedures that are less uh, carbon intensive uh, in, in, in producing this alternative fuel. Um, it is uh, usually biogenic or non-biogenic, so it doesn't necessarily have to be from organic. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a biofuel per se. Um, sustainable aviation fuel is limited in supply and extremely uh, 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 cost prohibitive because of uh, it being four to five times more expensive than conventional fuel. Again, as I mentioned, it's limited in supply. The current demand, uh, so the current supply doesn't even meet 1% of the global demand. The reason is because, again, feedstock is limited, production uh, plants are limited, etc. Um, now, we are uh, pressured by um, industry standards to start plugging in sustainable aviation fuel. And to be honest, Etihad has been one of the first basically movers of, of, of local capability production in the UAE. So we've been part of uh, the Sustainable Bioenergy Research Consorti Consortium as early as 2011, alongside a number of our partners in order for us to produce sustainable aviation fuel in the UAE. But it's not yet commercially available. So what we did is we went to where it is commercially available. We've partnered with two of the largest sustainable aviation fuel producers in the world, Neste and World Energy. And in, in the case of the COP27 flight, we're going to start we're going to purchase SAF credits. So as if we purchased actual volumes of sustainable aviation fuel from world energy and claim it, claim basically the, uh, the reduction, but have it operated in, in its locality. So in this case, in California. Again, this significantly reduces the carbon footprint of the sustainable aviation fuel. Transportation is one is, is a major contributor to emissions, right? So it doesn't make sense for us to transport the fuel into Abu Dhabi and use it. Um, and the book and claim system is a system that may, that is very uh, flexible and agile in a way that you can actually plug in SAF in your uh, operations without physically needing to, to, to use it. Moreover, I think it's worth Worth mentioning, Brandy, that uh, most airports are not designed to to uh, um, to specifically uh, plug in SAF in its infrastructure. Reason why you can't actually, uh, even if you do buy SAF and have it, um, you know, uh, in a port, um, you will not physically have 100% of the SAF you purchased in your aircraft. 
reason why, because all the sap is commingled with jet fuel in a big tank that fuels all the uh, all the planes in the airport. Again, uh, we're limited by infrastructure, to, uh, in, in, um, uh, and, and that's another reason why the book and claim system is an excellent um, uh, way to meet uh, to meet the demand halfway. One of the things people get concerned about um, with any sort of offsetting system is that it doesn't just become clever accounting. How can you convince me um, that we're so much more than this? It is clever accounting. In fact, um, Brandy, we've been offsetting since 2020 um, and uh, we've been using um, carbon credits, if you will, through forestation projects. And 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 probably these these credits, although really good, don't necessarily affect the way we run things operationally. Mm-hmm. Now, this type of credits changes the rules of the game because we are plugging in operational uh, efficiency um, uh, by by uh, by helping others uh, acquire SAF, um, even if we don't personally use the sustainable aviation fuel in our operations. We're helping other uh, airports, um, you know, uh, use the SAF. So I feel in terms of numbers, you can justify the the, 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 the offset um, in, in, in the case of SAF, uh, more so than in the case of forestation projects, because you're actually making a difference in, in the way you operate uh, rather than, you know, operate as business as usual and offset using forestation projects. Mariam Al-Kurbasi, she is the Head of Sustainability at Etihad, speaking about that special flight. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.